our suggested topic today is how to respond to answered prayer. It's kind of an interesting request, isn't it? This is, uh, this is our 24th sermon in our suggested topic series. It's number four of the 13 that are in this category of Christian living. Of course, to answer that question, how should we respond to answered prayer, is very easily easy. We should give thanks. We should thank God when he answers prayer. The answer is easy, but as the account we read about the ten lepers tells us, it's not so easy to do sometimes. We're often negligent, and we don't thank God for answering our prayers. We might even go and tell other people what God did, even say that God did it, and say that we are thankful for it, and not ever even give thanks to God. We never turn to Him and and actually thank Him for what He's done. There are additional responses that we ought to have as well to answered prayer. Besides giving thanks, we should also come to trust God more when He answers our prayers. And we should become more devoted and more obedient to Him when He answers our prayers. When trouble comes, we should remember His faithfulness to us in the past. This is an expression of gratitude for what He's done to us in the past. Our hearts should be thankful for the mercy that He has shown us so that we don't find it so hard when we have some trouble. Jesus remembered God's faithfulness to His people in the past when He was on the cross. And uh, He thought about God's faithfulness to the people in general and also to Him since He was in, in, uh, had, had been born over in His childhood. There are also the sins that we must avoid in the wake of answered prayer. For example, we can become displeased that God answered in one manner, matter and not in another. Like, oh, why didn't he answer this part? You know, we, we, we say that. Or that he answered, but not as I want. For example, I prayed for a job, but he didn't give me a job that I really uh, thought was the one that I liked so well. Or we can fall into spiritual pride or boasting. Look at me, God answered my prayers. We can go, go out and like we're, we're superior to other people. What's wrong with you? Yes, my prayers. Uh, or, or we can fall into presumption. For example, if uh, he gets us out of a financial mess and we were overspending, then we keep on overspending. <laughs> you know, he bailed me out. My, my uncle left me an inheritance right when I needed it, and God will do it again. So I'll just keep on living in a way of uh, carelessness I was doing before, presuming that God's going to keep on bailing me out. So there's all kinds of right and wrong responses that, we can have to to answer prayer. I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach in dealing with this topic. Rather than focusing so much on how you ought to respond, and we're going to be looking at that, but I'm going to show you how believers ultimately do respond. It's kind of a little bit of a more encouraging way in a, in a sense. It's quite encouraging, really. When you, when you have come to your gracious Savior for salvation, the inevitable outcome is that you will respond to Him in the way that you ought to respond to him. Ultimately, you will. So uh, my hope is that by looking at this and by seeing the right response to answered prayer that you will ultimately have, it will help you also to respond to him properly day by day. So it kind of sets us in. We're on a trajectory of responding properly to God. And so it sets us in that trajectory in our as we consider what God has promised concerning us, and then we can move into that as we, as we go down the pathway and be more faithful day by day. 
So Psalm 65 is where I want to go with this. It tells us of the beautiful way that every believer will eventually respond to answered prayer. Isn't that interesting? It's not a psalm that says, this is how you ought to respond to answered prayer. It's a psalm that says, this is the beautiful way that believers are going to respond to answered prayer. Listen as I read it to you. It's God's word. Psalm 65, beginning in verse 1. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, a song. Praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion. Into you the vows shall be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all flesh will come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. By awesome deeds and righteousness, you will answer us, O God of our salvation. You are the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of the far off seas, who established the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power. You who still the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples, they also who dwell in the farthest parts are afraid of your signs. You make the outgoings of the mornings and the evening rejoice. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain. For so you have prepared it. You water its ridges abundantly. You settle its furrows. You make it soft with showers. You bless its growth. You crown the year with your goodness. And your paths drip with abundance. They drop on the pastures of the wilderness. And the little hills rejoice on every side. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys also are covered with grain. They shout for joy. They also sing. Now all of those places that are spoken of as rejoicing and things, that can be looked at, yes, as God blessing those places and bringing forth fruit. But it's also a picture of God's people rejoicing before Him and His goodness and how He has blessed them as their Savior. It's a, this is our destiny as God's people. This is where we're headed. What an encouraging thing this is. Thanks be to God for his word that tells us this. See how this psalm, it's not, it's not telling you this is what you ought to do. It's saying this is what you're, you're going to do. It's, it's more like a prophecy than an exhortation. Very encouraging one. So let's, let's look at the particulars here. It tells you, first of all, that God will be praised by his people. The opening words are, Praise is waiting for you, O God, in Zion. Praise is pictured as something that is going to break forth. It's like somebody waiting for someone to come back that they're going to greet. You know, they're waiting to come and, and greet them. Or you're waiting for someone that you want to thank for something, and it is the case here. And so you're waiting till you see that till till they come, you know, or whatever. That it's praise is personified here as something that is waiting to happen. It's, it's going to happen. Time is coming when God will be praised. The word praise refers to a song of praise, adoration, or thanksgiving. That's really what the, the word used here, translated praise, means. So you could almost get the picture of a volcano. <laughs> Things happen when there's a volcano. There's a bunch of stuff going on underground, and it's waiting to erupt. And so it is, God is doing all these things 
preparing pray, praise is getting getting built up and then when it comes forth it's going to break forth like an, an eruption of praise just a matter of time until it will happen it's inevitable the pressure is there and it's going to happen observe then the location of this praise as well it says it's going to happen in zion zion is another name for the church it speaks to the people of god that god has chosen to bless with salvation Praise is going to erupt there in Zion from God's people. This is very encouraging, all of this. The explanation is that God will act in a way that will bring forth praise and thanksgiving from his people. He will do things, in other words, that will result in praise from his people. It anticipates that this praise will be in the form of the fulfillment of a vow. You can see that at the end of verse 1. And to you, the vow shall be performed. Now that needs a bit of explanation because we're not so familiar with vows and how they work, how they're supposed to work. What does a vow have to do with God being praised? Well, to answer that, let's turn over to Genesis 28 and take a look at Jacob at Bethel. You know what was going on with Jacob? He, uh, had, uh, he was running away from his brother. Esau. Esau was angry with Jacob for supplanting him twice, as he said. And Jacob and his mother had heard that Esau was planning to kill Jacob. And so he and his mother decided that it might be a good time for Jacob to go to Paddan Aram and uh, to find a wife from among some of their relations that were there. So he sets out on his journey And he comes to the place that he was to call from the event that happened there, Bethel, after this, which means house of God, right? Bethlehem, Lechem is bread, so Bethlehem is house of bread. Bethel, El is God. Bethel is house of God. So that's what he named it. So he was spending the night there, out under the stars, and he had a prophetic dream in which God renewed his gracious covenant promise with him that he had made with Abraham, okay, which pertained to Abraham and his descendants, right? And Jacob had the same promise then renewed to him with a couple of specific additions that were related to his present situation. You can see it for yourself, Genesis 28, verse 13. Then he dreamed and beheld a latter, And behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So this is communion between heaven and earth, between him and, and heaven. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east and to the north and the south. And in you and in all your seed, all the families of the earth will be, shall be blessed. So, okay, he was nervous. This guy's trying to kill him. He's going away and he has this dream that, you know what, I made this promise to Abraham and to Isaac and it's to you also, you're, you're not going to be destroyed. You're not going to be destroyed. I'm going to bring you back here from your journey, and you're going to inherit the land 
like I said, and you're going to bring forth the one that I promised, the son that I promised to save the world. Verse 15, behold, I am with you. Here's the specific part to him and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. So Jacob wakes up in the morning and he names the place Bethel. because He said, this was the house of God. God is here. I met with God. And he sets up a stone to mark the place as a monument there. And then he made his vow to God. Okay, this is where the vow is. Listen to what he said. Genesis 28, 20 through 22. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So Jacob's vow was a vow that he was going to worship God. He was going to praise God. The tithe would be to pay, to support that worship, giving of the things that God had given to him. And if God did what he said, what he promised, and brought Jacob back safely then Jacob would give God this tithe of all that he possessed as an expression of worshipful thanksgiving and affirmation that God is his God. He would say, God is my God. He would serve the Lord as his God. Now let's put this in the context of Psalm 65, where it talks about a vow. If we see Jacob taking this vow to praise God, if God brings him back safely... And if we know anything about God and his promises, then we can say that he's going, to be, he's going to be fulfilling that vow, right? Because God is going to bring him back. So over all the years that Jacob was gone, we might say, okay, so here's Jacob. He's going off. Praise is waiting for you, O God, at Bethel. And to you, the vow shall be performed. Do you see? You see what I'm doing there? God said... I'm going to bring you back. Jacob vowed and said, you bring me back. I'm going to praise you. Praise was there waiting all the time that Jacob was gone and all the things that he went through. Praise was going to happen at Bethel because God was going to bring Jacob back according to his promise. You could be confident that it was going to break forth as Psalm 65 is. Confident that God's people are going to praise him and that their vows to praise him and worship him will be fulfilled. What we have in the opening two verses of Psalm 65 is a way of expressing that God is going to do all the things that will bring forth praise and thanksgiving from his people. In Psalm 65 verse 2, God is addressed as, O you who hear prayer. I remember as a fairly young believer when I was reading uh, Thomas Watson. And I still remember this. It sticks in my mind. I think it was, it was probably about 35 years ago. <laughs> and he commented on how this was a name of God. You who hear prayer. And that stuck with me ever since. What a great name to know God by. You who hear prayer. That's how God is named. It's a, that stuck with me and been a great blessing to me ever since. And to put this with verse 1, people make vows when they pray, promising that if God will answer, they will praise him and serve him. 
There were even rituals that were prescribed in the Old Testament for paying such vows where you would get your friends and you would get, you were supposed to get poor people as well together to come and have a feast to praise and thank God for answering your prayer. So you would say like Jacob did, Lord, if you will do this, then I'm going to worship you. And then you would have a feast. You'd get your friends together and you would worship him, bring sacrifices and feasting. There were, there were a ritual prescription for that in the Old Testament. So again, the main point in these first two verses of Psalm 65 is that God is going to do such gracious things for his people and in his people that they will bring forth praise and thanksgiving. It's a certain thing because it's God that will bring it about. He is that kind of God. Praise is inevitable because of who God is. Praise is going to happen. It's going to happen from his church. He orchestrates things in such a way for his people that they will praise him. Now the psalm shows us that there is the answer to one prayer in particular that will cause praise to break forth and vows to be performed by all who are in Zion. So there's one particular prayer that is answered that will bring forth this praise that Psalm 65 speaks of. The prayer that always results in praise is the prayer for salvation from sin. God's elect people eventually, now remember you're elect from before you were even born, but you're not necessarily converted yet. And uh, God's elect people eventually become clear about their sin. They're gripped with the reality described in verse 3 that iniquities prevail against me. This becomes the occasion of their prayer. Like sin has got a hold of me and I need to be delivered. The word iniquity speaks of sin as both an act and a penalty. Okay? You, You understand the distinction. The sin as something that I keep doing, that I'm in bondage to, and something that I'm penalized for, that I have uh, sorrows on account of. As an act, we know that it has a grip on us, that we are by nature from our birth in bondage to sin, that we commit sin, it overtakes us. And as a penalty, we know that God punishes sin, that we're estranged from him because of it. We have death and the curse because of it. We have eternal retribution on account of it. Truly, iniquities prevail against us. When anyone comes to terms with that, it's overwhelming. It becomes something that you cry out to God about. There is a helplessness and you cry out to him for mercy and deliverance. You say, have mercy on me, a sinner. One of the great distinguishing marks of God's people of Zion, the true church, is that they come to see that they need God to save them from their sins. The people of the world may have pangs of conscience, but they try to shake them off by being good, maybe, or by doing good. You know, I'm a pretty good person. Look at what I did. Or by rationalizing. Well, anybody would have done that in my situation, if you had my situation, what I was born or where, you know, whatever problem. By denying the true God and exchanging him for idols. 
versions of God that are misrepresentations of God. So that, well, I don't think God really cares about that. It's not really, it's not really that bad. They, they, they try to solve their, the, the fact that iniquities are prevailing over them. Or by distraction through entertainment or through work or even through more sin. Or maybe through pursuing some cause, maybe a good cause, maybe a wicked cause. But they engage themselves and get themselves swallowed up with things so that they don't have to think about the iniquities prevailing over me. It has a hold on me and I need to be delivered. But what they never do, you see, is they never become so convinced of their sin and guilt that they look to God to deliver them. They never come to say iniquities prevail over me. Sin and its consequences overtake me. And so they never cry out to God to save them from their sins the way that all the sons of Zion do. This is a mark that distinguishes God's elect people from the world. And I want to be clear here that I don't mean that everyone has a crisis conversion experience. I mean that there is within everyone who is elect an awareness of their sin and that they cannot save themselves and that sin is, over, is, is overwhelmingly strong and that they have to rely on God and his promises to deliver them. So you may have even relied on him from as long back as you can remember. It doesn't mean you have to have some great conversion experience at some point, the way Paul did or something. But it means that you have this awareness. Iniquities prevail over me and only God can deliver me. And you, you look to him. Okay, and what is the outcome of this prayer? Wherever it is prayed, it inevitably leads to praise. Why? Because wherever that prayer is praised, it is always answered. God's elect people end up praising him because he has delivered them from their iniquities. The second part of verse 3 says, as for our transgressions, what we were just praying about, you will provide atonement for them. Atonement means a covering. God will cover the sins. We try to cover them up ways I was talking about. God covers them through the blood of his son. If you're overwhelmed with a debt and a rich man says, don't worry about it, I'll cover it. What does that mean? He's going to take care of it. He's going to do what needs to be done. He's going to provide for you whatever needs to be provided to take care of that debt and set you free. That's what our gracious Lord does. He brings us to see that iniquities prevail against us so that we cry out to him to deliver us from our sins and their punishment. And then he provides atonement. He covers them for us. He delivers us from them. Now, of course, he provided atonement like we saw this morning at a certain time in history in the world when Jesus came and brought forth that atonement. But then he brings that atonement into our purview so that we see it, we see what he's done, and we trust in him, and we rest and rely upon Jesus Christ for our salvation. And what does that do? It causes us to be filled with praise to God and thanksgiving. It causes it to erupt in Zion. God sent his son, born of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those who were under the law who are in their great need. So this is done corporately. This happened in history when Jesus came. The church erupted in praise. Those who are God's elect people when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, when he went to the cross for us and rose from the dead, covered our sins. 
Son of God came down from heaven and went to the cross to bear our sins. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he takes us who are crooked and guilty, and he sets us straight and covers our sins by dying in our place. He bears our punishment and sets us free. We're not only pardoned, but we're also transformed to be what we ought to be. To be those who serve God, who love God, who obey God, who worship God, who love each other, who serve each other. Sin was too much for us. Iniquities prevailed over us. But our mighty gracious God delivers us from our transgressions. So it happens to you in a personal way. And it happens to all of God's people together in what happened in history when Christ came. So the worship of the church is the result of God's answer to Zion's prayers for deliverance. That's right. The reason that the people of God gather every week to worship God is because he heard and answered us when we cried out to be delivered from our iniquities. Now, 2,000 years ago, praise broke forth from those in the Old Testament who were forgiven on the basis of what God was going to do. So as they anticipated God's going to send a son, he's going to take care of this, then, uh, then, then praise came from them individually along the way as they, as they went along. It's shown by the sacrifices and worship of the Old Testament. That was their expression of praise and thanksgiving. They gathered to give thanks to his name. Praise broke forth all the more when God sent his son, as we saw this morning, to actually provide that atonement. We bring forth this praise then corporately in the assembly, in the church, and each of us as individuals brings it forth when we personally come to grips with what God has done. When we come to believe that iniquities do prevail over us, but see that in Christ God has provided atonement. Whether you grow up in this, into this reality as one who was born into the church and was taught it from your parents, or whether you come to know it as one who is outside the church and come to believe. What matters is that you see that you are powerless against sin apart from Jesus Christ, whom God sent to atone for your iniquities. It's then that praise breaks forth from us and we pay the vow. Jesus Christ himself is the one who leads us in this prayer. He became with us part of the iniquity problem. He never committed iniquity himself, but he came to bear our iniquities, as the scripture says repeatedly. He is the one who actually made the vow. Like Jacob, when he was overwhelmed, he heard God's promise and vowed that if God delivered him, he and all his would worship God. It was a vow that he made for himself and for his posterity who were dependent on God answering him and bringing him back safely. Jesus was overwhelmed when he came to bear our sins so that, as Hebrews 5, 7 says, in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplications and with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. It was because he was heard that we come together every Sunday. It's because Jesus was heard that his people worship him every week, each Lord's Day, each Sunday, that we praise God. Praise broke forth from him 
and with all who believe in him, keeping the vow that he made as his seed, as his posterity. Our our, uh, catechism says, with whom was the covenant made? And it says it was made with Christ and with all the elect as his seed. Psalm 22 is very clear about this. It was written 1,000 years before Jesus came. You might turn there if you want. Uh, It was written 1,000 years before Jesus came. But it is a detailed prophecy of the prayers of Jesus to the Father when he was on the cross. The first 21 verses show him crying out, what we just read about in Hebrews, with vehement cries and tears for deliverance. He was bearing the sins of all his people. Iniquities prevail over my body, over my people, over my church. And he says, Lord, have mercy. He begins with the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words that we know were heard on the cross. He remembers how God has been faithful to deliver his people. And he pleads for deliverance now. Speaking of his pierced hands and feet. Of enemies taunting and accusing him around the cross like dogs gathering around. Of his garments being divided. All of these things that we're familiar with on the cross. In verse 21, he declares that God has heard him or has answered him. This is not as clear as it ought to be in some translations, but the New King James is excellent when it translates the last phrase of verse 21, you have answered me. It stands out in that psalm. The whole psalm changes tone after he says, you have answered me. After that, Jesus tells of how he will lead his people to praise his father for delivering him and them from all of their iniquities. Now remember, iniquity is the punishment of sin as well as sin itself. Jesus associated himself with his sinful people and their guilt, and he cried out for deliverance on the cross. Jesus did not personally sin, but he bore our iniquities. If he had not been heard, we would still be in our sins. And there would be no praise of God in Zion. If his offering had not been accepted by the Father, we would be sunk by our iniquities forever and ever. And Jesus would be sunk with us. Now, it was not possible that the Father would not hear him, but theoretically, if it had happened, that would be the result. Take a look at how Jesus promises to lead his whole church. It's called here the great assembly. That's what the word church means, an assembly. Called out ones. His brethren, he calls them also. How he promises to lead the whole church in praise forever because God heard his prayer. Begin at Psalm 22, 22, chapter 22, verse 22. Right after he says, you have answered me, the point at which the tone of the psalm changes. In verse 22, he says, I will declare your name. What is God's name? It's whatever is revealed about God, right? Whatever God makes known about himself, that's his name. His, his names, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. All of those things are ways that God reveals himself. So he says, I'll declare your name, what you have done, who you are, what you have revealed yourself to be in this event of answering my prayer. I will declare your name to my brethren, In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. In the midst of the church, I will praise you. He's promising to lead his church to praise God for hearing his prayer. In verse 23 and 24, he he calls the descendants of Jacob to join him 
in this praise. Those who fear God in Jacob, the people of Israel, to praise God for accepting his offering for sin. Look at verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. Those that God had told Jacob long ago were going to be uh, his people. For he has not despised. Now this is talking about the father. For he, God the father, has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Jesus was afflicted for our sins on the cross. And God didn't say, "Uh, that's not good enough. He didn't despise his affliction. Nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. Right? Back to the end of verse 21. You have answered me. You have heard me. The Lord did not reject his sacrifice. The Father did not reject the Son's sacrifice for our sins. You have heard. And it is in verse 25 that he speaks of the great worshiping assembly as paying a vow by their worship. Again, like Jacob, that he would worship God. He's telling what's going to happen, like Psalm 65. That he would worship God with them if God delivered him. That was the vow. He says, verse 25, My praise shall be of you. Now he's saying it in a sense after he had been delivered. But he had promised that if God would indeed receive his sacrifice for his people, that he would bring them to the Father too, because there weren't enough people to worship God. He was going to bring them in to worship the Father. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. Okay, the people who fear God, who realize who God is, who deal with God as God is, that's people that fear God. He says, we're going to pay the vows together. My vows, my vows. My people and I are going to worship. Okay, the poor shall eat and be satisfied. Remember when they had a vow, what I told you? They were supposed to invite poor people. Yeah, they invite their relatives and their friends and poor people. Because the poor people are going to rejoice. They're there at a big feast. They get to eat. They get to have good food and rejoice before the Lord. Those who seek him will praise the Lord, he says. They will. That's what's going to happen. The people that are, are looking for deliverance in Zion, they're going to rejoice that God heard the Messiah's prayer on the cross. Let your heart live forever, he says. This. <laughs> they will. That's a blessing, like Benedict, let your heart live forever. That's going to happen to Jesus' people. Their heart's going to live forever as those who are praising God. All the people who accept the reality of God and what he has done, those who seek God and fear God, those who see their sin and the atonement that God has provided and believe are going to join in this praise. And then in verse 27, Jesus describes how this praise will extend to the ends of the earth. The nations that do not know God will join in the praise when they learn what God has done for his people. It's like one, Psalm 117 where the Gentiles are called, called to praise God for his mercy toward us. right? Because of what he's done for us, come and praise him with us and become one of those who's done it for as well <laughs> through faith. Okay, He says, 27, all the ends of the world. Okay, So we're, we're here in Israel talked about them coming, rejoicing, paying the vow. But he says, people from all over the world 
are going to come. All the ends of the world shall remember what was done, right? When God heard his prayer when he was on the cross, it's going to be such a monumental event that people all over the world are going to remember it and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. What did we see with Jacob? In you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Your seed and all the families of the earth. Here we go. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. So the, the people that are prosperous, they're going to realize they don't have anything. The elect people who prosper say, I don't have anything apart from the Lord. Iniquities, over, they, 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 they prevail over me. And they come into this salvation. And those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. They realize they can't even keep their self, themselves alive. Even he who cannot keep himself alive. And in verse 30 and 31, how long is this going to go on? Jesus says that this praise is going to continue from generation to generation. A posterity shall serve him. In other words, that's descendants, right? People that will be born. And, and it will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. That he has done this. Done what? Heard his son when he offered himself on the cross for our sins. That he has accepted his son's sacrifice to atone for sin. Psalm 22 was fulfilled when Jesus was on the cross. The praise that erupted started with Jesus himself. When, Jesus, when God heard his prayer. And that praise continues to this day among all of God's elect people. This is also the fulfillment of Psalm 65. And it's prophecy that God will be praised in Zion as the one who answers prayer by doing what? Providing atonement for their sins. It says that to him the vow will be paid of praise and thanksgiving by those who are overwhelmed with their iniquities, but for whom God provided atonement. Psalm 65 goes on to describe the response that we have to him as the one who answers our prayers, who answered our prayer, in particular to the prayer to save us from our sins. So the first thing that breaks forth, what we've seen is praise. Be sure then that the church is more to you than a social gathering, more than a feel-good event, more than a duty, more than a time for learning and instruction. It is a time of learning and instruction. But it should be more. See that it is a time when you fulfill the vow that Jesus made to praise and thank God for what he's done. See that it's a time when you consider what he's done. You hear the gospel. And you give thanks to God as you hear it in your heart that you praise erupts from you. Praise is the inevitable result of God's gracious work for his people. Jesus leads it. His praise is full and complete and perfect. The praise of those who are now with him in glory is almost complete. They're, they're waiting for their bodies to be raised up and then they'll be able to praise him as a whole body and, and soul together uh, when they're raised from the dead. And the praise of those of us who are still here is an ever-growing thing. 
is we grow what? In our grasp and of what has been done and are gripped more and more by the love and mercy of our God and of his son and what has been accomplished for us, our gratitude grows. Our praise will be perfected only in glory. And God, God will see to that. We don't have to see to it. God will see to it. It is inevitable that he will have praise from his people, all those that he has redeemed, all of Zion. But there is more that comes as a result of his answered prayer. Answered prayer makes us happy to be active in the church, which is his house. In verse 4, it speaks of how we are blessed to dwell happily in his house forever. Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. Those who believe are brought into God's family and delight to be there, living within the structure that he has provided in his household, in the order that he has set, established. Satisfied with the goodness of his house, with the ordinances of his worship that he has appointed, with the fellowship and the doctrine and the praise. This is the result of God's answering of prayer. He has delivered us from our sins and we thank him for that. And then we delight in the outcome of that. That now we get to live in his house. To know him as our father. And to be the bride of Christ. Happy sons. Happy bride. Devoted to him. Serving him faithfully. Answered prayer should make you more attached. More gladly attached. More devoted. More faithful to his house. And to his people. Okay, that's one of the outcomes. Now I'm talking about what. What should happen, what will happen too, if you are elect. Answered prayer also causes us to pray more prayers. Verse 5, we're in Psalm 65 again. Psalm 65, 5. In verse 5, it speaks of how we are blessed with God, continuing to answer our prayers, giving us more reasons to praise Him. So when we have come to Him for salvation, He's answered our prayer. We're going to see more answered prayer and we're going to pray more prayers. By awesome deeds and righteousness, it says, you will answer us, O God of our salvation. You who are the confidence of all the ends of the earth and all the far off seas. So it's picturing that time when the people from all over the world come trusting in God and praying to him and looking to him. Answered prayer leads to more prayer. It also leads to more suitable prayer. We look for deeds of righteousness to be done. For him to work in us to make us better. For him to work in the church to make us more faithful and to make us better witnesses of him. In other words, we, we better prayers. We're not just praying, oh God, you know, give me these things that I want. Why won't you give me these things? But we're saying, Lord, make me holy. We're praying better prayers, prayers that get answered. We look to him with confidence together in all of his lost sheep to strengthen us, to carry his word to the nations, to our family and to our neighbors. We look to him to crush the enemies of his kingdom, Satan and all those who are in league with him. We look to him to restore us and to preserve us. Deeds of righteousness. That's what we look for. The more we see him answering our prayers, the more we pray. Answered prayer also awakens us to see his powerful, gracious, life-restoring work in the world. We're not so alert to God sometimes, are we? But when we have been answered then our answered prayer 
makes us more alert to what God is doing all around us. This is beautifully depicted poetically in the rest of Psalm 65. We see his hand as the one, verse 6, who established the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power. So we see the power of God, the strength of God in the mountains. We speak to him as the one who suppresses disorder and wickedness, verse 7 and 8. You who still the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves. That's often a reference, refers to the wicked, the seas and the waves. And the tumult of the peoples. They also who dwell in the farthest parts are afraid of your signs. So he, he subdues the wicked. We see him doing that and we give thanks to him for that because we're praying for that, you see. We speak to him as the one who daily enriches the earth with blessing. And, and fruitfulness. See from the middle of verse 8 to verse 10. You make the outgoings of the morning and evening rejoice. The beginning and ending of the day. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain. For so you have prepared it. You water its ridges abundantly. You settle its furrows so that it is soft with showers you bless its growth so that shows God bringing blessing to land bringing blessing to people in the world where there was barrenness that he brings forth life just like he does when he waters our crops when he sends his rain to the dry ground that breaks up the hardness and allows the seed to begin to germinate. We, we speak to him as the one who continues faithfully year after year to bring abundance and happiness and good things, living things, a harvest of beautiful righteousness. This is such a beautiful psalm. Look at verse 11. You crown the year with your goodness and your paths drip with abundance. They drop on the pastures of the wilderness where there was no life. And the little hills rejoice on every side. Where there were dead people to God, there is now rejoicing and praising of God that is brought forth. Verse 13, the pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys also are covered with grain. They shout for joy. They also sing. My brothers and sisters, this is how we respond to answered prayer if we are among those who believe. God has answered our cry to save us from sin and from death and barrenness when we were overwhelmed with iniquity. What we do in response to that answered prayer, we are to do with all answered prayer. What we do with that prayer, we're to do with all prayer. To praise and thank him for what he has done. To be more devoted to him in his house because of it. To increase and improve our prayers. To become more mindful of his powerful, gracious hand working in the earth. That is what our God brings forth by his faithfulness to his covenant people. Then let's give thanks to him. Please stand. O oh Lord our God, how thankful we are for your faithfulness, for your mercy and grace that brings forth praise in the earth. 
Praise is waiting for you, O God, in Zion. To you, the vow will be paid. Father, truly, this is what is inevitable. Praise is going to break forth. It already has broken forth all over the world. And it is continuing to break forth. As we, as we think of the, the globe and we see where there's brown barrenness and death, that there is fruitfulness as the nations come to, to know the Lord God. As there are people praising you over in a mountain over here and over in a valley over there and by a river over there. People from all over the world, people who did not know you, are breaking forth with praise and thanksgiving. And we pray, O oh Lord, that as we see how you work in the world, that we would come into a delightedness as those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ to praise you for that redemption and then to praise you for all of the things that you do, Lord, that we would become a people who are filled with gratitude and who do not grumble and complain, but who delight in our gracious God and what he has done for us. Lord, there is much work that needs to be done in us, but there is much power in your hand, and there is much work that you will do. And we thank you that there is much that you have already done. Father, how many of us here were filled with cursing and blasphemy before you brought us to see that iniquities were prevailing over us and caused us to come and to rest in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done to deliver us and to enter into his vow of praise and thanksgiving for our salvation. Father, how many of us would have been barren and dead and lifeless with no praise to our God? And now you have put a song in our lips. We thank you, Lord, that you have put that song to the very depth of our being. And we pray, Lord, that we would continually break forth in praise to our God filled with the fruits of your salvation and with gratitude. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing Psalm 65 together. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.